I'm Michael Barber, and this is The Accomplishment Podcast. My guest is Sue Campbell, widely regarded as one of the most influential women in world sport. My early encounters with her were about school sports more than 20 years ago, but since then, Sue has been part of two quite extraordinary accomplishments. Sue was chair of UK Sport in the run-up to the London Olympics, a hugely successful event in which Team GB did brilliantly well. Then more recently, she became director of women's football at the FA. She has led women's football in England up to and beyond the 2022 Euros played here in England. It was the first major football tournament won by an England team since 1966. I asked Sue about these two once-in-a-lifetime accomplishments, something very few people get to achieve. How does she feel about being part of them? I think above all else, that feeling of making the country proud, happy, optimistic, bringing joy to people. You know, I still remember walking through the Olympic Park and seeing happy, joyful people singing the national anthem, sitting on the bank of the river somewhere between the athletics and the the cycling velodrome. And the same sensation watching the fans and the players enjoy one another at the Euros. So, yeah, it's been, you're right, it's been a privilege for me to have both jobs and it's been very special to see the success of both teams. I watched every game on television except the one I went to live, which was England against Northern Ireland, Southampton. And the atmosphere was absolutely amazing. And the the country did get really excited about it. And and the celebrations after the final, I was watching all that. And I did just catch a glimpse of you somewhere in the background. But what was it like? You've worked on that for several years. What was it like being there for the actual moment of triumph? Well, I think the same thing with London 2012. Um, It takes years. I mean, I remember talking to Peter Keane, who was then my performance director at UK Sport when he first joined us. um, And he'd done a brilliant job as performance director at British Cycling. And I said to him, how long does it take to build a world-class system? And he said anywhere between six and eight years. So what you're watching when you see those moments It's not something that's happened spontaneously, but something, it's like building a business. It's a very well-planned, well-thought-through, highly structured process to get where you want to get to. So, you know, for me, working at the FA hasn't always been easy. It's not always been straightforward. It's had some battles in it, as all things do tend to have. And for me, that moment when we won that, um, the players had asked me to go down onto the pitch if we won it, and I did. I went down onto the pitch, and the first thing was, you know, players grabbing hold of me. I've got a wonderful picture of Chloe literally hanging on me like a monkey with her arms around my shoulder, her legs around my waist, just screaming in my ear, you know. And the first person I met when I walked onto the pitch was actually Serena, who walked to me with her arms out, looking at me and said, what have we done? (laughs) And I said, you've just won the Euros for the second time. (laughs) And then they they all, you know, and we had their pictures. And then they went off round the um, pitch. And I just went and sat on the podium for a few minutes while they were going round. One 
taking in that moment, that extraordinary moment with probably still 80,000 people. No one seemed to move at the end of the game. No, absolutely. And the players going round. But also just a moment of reflection, really, about the journey. And I think I've said it a few times, whatever the struggles, that moment was worth every struggle I went through. And, uh, yeah, just a very, very special moment at a very personal level, but a really special moment for those players, for Serena and for that incredible audience. I think there were 17 million watched it on telly and another 5 million watched it online. So we had 23 million people essentially watching that game. Just fantastic. And, you know, when I came home, dropping into the local pub and the guys who in the past have probably not been that interested in women's sport or women's football, all really excited talking to me. It just it excited the nation. It was a wonderful thing. And I think a massive turning point for the women's game. You talked about the struggle and obviously one crucial thing I guess you would say is appointing Serena Wiegmann who everybody obviously the players most of all but everybody could see this was a a very very impressive coach and manager of a team but before Serena came on board there must have been some other crucial building blocks inside the FA to get that focus. I think when I first started at the FA I was surprised at how little strategy and structure there was around the women's game there were people working jolly hard on it as there always are and individuals making a difference but there was no clear vision about what we really wanted to do and where we wanted to go and increasing participation increasing the fan base developing the women's professional game were all clearly important elements of it but building a world-class team at the top of a game is a much more detailed and slow process. So one of the big jobs was trying to get, and I'm I'm going to use the word control, but I I managed to manage our multidisciplinary team. When I first got there, multidisciplinary teams were managed centrally. So I got given whoever I was given. And my argument was, I don't want those people. And it wasn't, I was being critical of those individuals. I want to be able to select the people that are world-class around elite women players, not people who know their subject area have worked for years in the men's game. That's not what I want. I want people who understand elite women. Very similar process to UK sport when I came in and looked and realised in 2003 that the women were not winning the proportion of medals that they should do. As I pushed on that and explored it and pushed at it, I realised that we just hadn't got people working with elite women who understood elite women as opposed to elite men. Changing that's been a huge part. And what I can say is, while absolutely right, Serena is exceptional. She had an exceptional team around her. The skill she brought was taking the best in everything and blending them into a unit and making them a special team. I love and I think it's very important, this focus on you wanted people who could work with it and had experience of working with women in elite sports, not yeah. just in elite sports. Yeah. And what about the launch of the women's, the WSL and all, all of that? Was Has that been important in this? Because that was another thing that took your time, wasn't it? Yeah, very important. I mean, we we made the decision to go to a full-time professional league in 2017 and, and uh, launched it in 2018. And, People, when I first said we were going to do that, said I was bonkers and that there wouldn't be 12 clubs that were prepared to invest in full-time teams. Um, And 
but I knew that if we want to get our players playing at an intensity and a regularity that you need, you can't suddenly produce an intense world-class performance if that's not where you've been playing. If you've been playing at a different level, it's quite hard to take that step. So we needed to create a far more competitive and intense league. So going to full-time professional league was really important. And that unquestionably has had a huge impact. And my honest belief is we couldn't be where we are without the clubs and the clubs wouldn't be where where they want to be without us because right now England is their big marketing tool England is the thing that people want to watch and it markets and promotes the women's game but they they do the day-to-day work with the players and then Serena brings them in and moulds them again into uh, this unit. What's remarkable about her is not just technical, tactical stuff, which she is unquestionably one of the best in the world, if not the best, in the women's game. What an incredible human being she is. You know, I think the evidence of that was not in the 11 she picked. It was in the 12 that never got off the bench. And at that moment when we won, the first player who ran and jumped on her with joy was a player who'd never played a minute. That ability to keep all of those 23 players eager, energised, committed, part of the mission was a real skill. And you can't underestimate how important that was because every day we went out to train, those players who you would have thought would become disillusioned and a bit disengaged were really intensely focused and they knew their job was to prepare the team that was going to play by playing as well as they could. And she, that I think is the sign of an exceptional leader, that she was able to take everyone on the same journey. And that is an exceptional achievement, because if if those people are sitting on the sidelines complaining or moaning or upset, all of which would be possibly understandable, it does drain the energy from the whole squad, doesn't it? Yeah. Sometimes we focus on the people who we think deliver for us, and we forget about all those people that make that possible. And as a leader... She cares about every single person, even the ones that weren't selected. She kept in touch with the whole time. Don't confuse that with her being soft. She's just very direct, very honest, and really values every individual and makes them feel valued, but doesn't kid them along. Doesn't say, well, you know, if you try a bit harder, maybe you'll get in tomorrow, when she knows that's not going to happen. She tells them it as it is. And I think they really respect that, and they found that refreshing, And most of them, well, without exception, would say she was the magic that turned the potential into reality. Yeah, and she's very consistent in team selection. So, in fact, I can't think of another manager or coach who's been that consistent through a whole tournament. No, she believes in sort of the rhythm. I think all of us, when we beat Norway 8-0 and we'd won the first game against Austria, we were going into the Northern Ireland game I think virtually anyone, including me, would have said, oh, she's going to put on a change team. She's going to try out some of the others. Mm -mm, No. Why? You get such a little window with them and you're getting them to play to a certain pattern and rhythm and they have to continue that sort of developing. It's like an orchestra, I guess. You know, if you just threw a new trumpeter in or a new violinist, they'd become slightly out of sync. And she likes to keep that rhythm and is a great believer in that rhythm. And when she does put on other people, which she did, as you know, people like Rousseau and Ella Toon came on, 
because the rhythm is already set, they kind of drop in. It's like the tune's already yeah. going, so they fall into the into the tune. Yeah. So, yeah, very, very skillful, great to watch. And one of the other things that was incredibly distinctive was very little time did she stand in the technical area. I mean, when you think about the men's game, that mostly the coaches are standing there screaming, squawking and yeah. shouting. She sits on the bench. The only time she goes into the technical box is when she wants to tactically change something. And right. she has two designated players, one on either side of the pitch, that are her messengers. Right. And she'll talk either to Lucy Bronze or to Rachel Daly if the team's the other way around. Then they do the talking to the rest of the team. But otherwise, she sits on the bench. There's, she says, you know, at that point, she can influence nothing. That They are out there. It's their responsibility. They need to take the responsibility to play the game. And then... There was that moment of triumph that you described so vividly from your personal perspective, but we all felt in different ways around the country. And the key word that's come out of that triumph is legacy, talking about girls and football, the fact that women's football was banned pretty much for 50 years in this country, and it's now had 50 years of growth, but it's reached a unique moment in the history of women's sport in this country of opportunity to build a legacy that has lasting effects for girls, not just at the elite level, but for girls who want to play football. Presumably, you're going to be in charge of that, which in some ways may be an even bigger challenge than uh, than winning a tournament. So we put our legacy plans in place over two years before the Euros. We focused on particularly on the host cities. And what we decided to do was not suddenly write new ideas, but to take the strategy we've already got, which is called Inspiring Positive Change, and turbocharge it in those host cities. We gave them the strategy and said, you know, almost it's like a menu. You can pick what you like, which relates to your area, and we're going to then put that in place. And to be fair, the numbers that we've seen in those host city areas, we set targets which we said we'd achieve by 2024, and in 50% of the cases, we've already met those targets. So Amazing. we've made a big difference. The players themselves are on the bus with very heavy hangovers, may I say, the next morning when we were going to Trafalgar Square, Lotta came to see me and said, tap me on the shoulder, Sue, we want to talk to you. I said, okay, what is it? So Lotta and Leah, who's the captain, said, look, we don't want our legacy to just drift along. We, we want to make a big difference. We want to help with every girl getting a chance to play the game. And we want to write a letter to the two candidates to be prime minister. And I said, great then you should do that. And they said, do you think that's all right? I said, I think it's great. I think you should do it. All 23 players signed it and we sent it to Richie Sunak and Liz Truss. And it was basically asking for what, Michael, I talked to you about 22 years ago, which is to get physical education and sport in our schools on a sound footing. The tragedy we've got is in the last 10 years, we've lost 50,000 hours of physical education in our schools and we've lost teachers. So while we, the FA, are putting a huge amount of money and time into schools, clubs and community for young, young girls and, and uh, young teenagers to play our game, enjoy our game, and for those who have the ambition to be good at it, we're battling against a policy that doesn't work for us. It's like putting it into an alien environment. So although we're in 15,000 schools now and we are seeing changes, we're having to push against almost a lack of interest from central government in PE and school sport. 
which is, is tragic because when you and I were talking, out of that came, I think, a really brilliant scheme that the rest of the world came to look at. But in the last 10, 15 years, it's gone backwards so quickly and it's so tragic because for our children's physical, emotional and social well-being, PE and school sports shouldn't be a nice to do, it should be a need to do. I think your women's football team are quite right to say we want to help you with this because they are extraordinary motivators now, aren't they? And they they yeah, represent I mean, an inclusive view of Britain. Uh, they're, they're just a tremendous group of people. They are. And, and the great thing is they're authentic and they're relatable. You know, they're like the yeah, girl next yeah. door. They're not, these are not rich players. These are players no. that have fought their way through to play for their country. Um, and they certainly haven't earned a huge amount. I think it's really important that people understand that they have a massive commitment to grow the game. They will do a super job. You're obviously personally very passionate about sport. Are you willing or interested in talking about maybe when you were at school? How did you get into sport? I was a really sort of, you know, I suppose it, what was called in those days a tomboy. You know, I was either out climbing trees or playing football in or roller skating with Brian Carrier, who was my best friend around in right. Farm Road there. And we used to kick balls around and play together and and I loved football. And I didn't realise girls didn't play football or weren't going to be I wasn't going to be allowed to play football when I went to secondary school. And so I went to netball and, and hockey. But I wasn't great academically because I was too busy looking out the window and you know, I was that sort of kid that's always fidgeting because I just always wanted to be moving. Slowly, uh, you know, my PE teacher Sheila Bassett got hold of me and basically said, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, you know, I don't know. And she said, well, I think you should be a PE teacher. And I said, what do I have to do? And she said, well, start, start with you're going to have to get working academically. So she motivated me to start to study. And I went to PE college and then taught in Mossside, Manchester. And then, you know, the rest I've just sort of, these jobs have appeared and I've found myself in them. And my passion for what I do was really born, to be honest, in Moss Side, where up to that point, I'd just been a sporty kid that did sport because I loved it. I'd never really thought about its power to help kids with learning or to help them feel better about themselves or, or do well in the world, forget whether they ended up being good in sport, could they be better in life? And what I found when I worked in Moss Side were, were youngsters who didn't want to play the things I wanted them to play, but with a bit of discussion and negotiation and time, I was able to build a relationship with those youngsters that many of whom did not go on to be sporty, but went on to do better in life. And I guess that's where my mission was born, which is I've had lots of roles, but I've only had one mission. And that is how do you use this thing called sport to change lives for the better? either in sport itself or through sport, how do you help make the world a better place through sport? That's really what's driven me in every job I've done. You got to be chair of UK sport before even we knew there was going to be a London Olympics because that was 2005, wasn't it, that decision? Yeah, in 2003 I went into UK sport. Was your contribution there similar to the one you described at the FA where you're putting the building blocks in place, understanding that elite women need specialist people who understand elite women in sport? What were the building blocks there over that 10-year period? I went on an enormous learning curve very quickly, but also the politics of it all were huge at UK sport. We had four home countries, Scotland, yeah. Wales, Northern Ireland and England, each with very different strategies and policies. 
when I went into UK sport in 2003, we were only responsible for the last four years of an athlete's training. So we picked them up, if you like, from the home countries with four years to go to the next Olympics. And Pete Keane came to see me and said, it's not good enough. I need six to eight years on this pathway. And I said, well, I've got to go and wrestle this off Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and English sports councils. And he said, yes. And it took me a while, but we agreed to do that. And that allowed us to have a, a sort of two-tier you know, investment in those who were going to the next Olympics and then a big investment in those who were going to the Olympics after that. And it started to create a mindset you know, longevity was the important thing, which meant getting the right talent at the bottom was really important. So we, we brought in a much better and more rigorous look at talent. But the other thing that really changed mindsets was the way money had been distributed by UK Sport was based on plans that the governing body wrote. And I remember reading, I took some of them home early, early in my tenure and, and looked at them and they were works of fiction, really. <laughs> I mean, they right, were be- right. beautifully written, but, you know, you give us that and we're going to win 47 million. Mm, don't think so. And you looked at the, the plan versus what they'd actually delivered and you kind of went, hmm, this doesn't kind of ring true. So I said to Pete, I want to change this. I don't, I, this, this kind of let them guess and then we guess whether their guess is right. Can't be the way you should distribute money. So what I want you to do for me is I want you to work out what the costs are to take an athlete on any of the Olympic or Paralympic, we started with the Olympics, the Olympic disciplines, to take them four years out. You know, what's the coaching? How much coaching do they need? What warm weather do they need? Uh, what equipment? Did I and he came back and he said, this is the cost. And then we said, right, to each of the good bodies, right, name the people that you genuinely believe. Don't give us a plan. Name the people that you think could achieve medal success in the next Olympics, and they go, do, 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 do. And you multiply it by his number and you say, right, that's how much you've got for your plan. Now develop your plan. So what happened was it went from everybody guessing about success to a much more measured understanding of applying a resource more effectively against an individual to help them achieve the goal and the dream. It was a much clearer investment strategy, which took out a lot of the guesswork um, meant that quite a number of sports that had, had had written great works of art before got much less money. Gymnastics would be one of them, for example. And I know that was not easy to tell them, but that was the reality. And in the end, you know, gymnastics is a great case study where I took a lot of their money away because they had very few athletes that gymnasts that were going to perform well at the next Olympics, but the following Olympics, they identified the group of boys that they felt by London would start to achieve something. And of course, they were the ones that went on to achieve medal success in London and then on massively into Rio where they won endless number of medals. And what yeah. we did was get people mindset on how do you actually produce performance? It isn't a chance thing. It has to be a very scientific and well-planned process over six to eight years, not two or three. During that time when you were putting the building blocks in place for UK sport, Tessa Jowell was the minister for the Olympics, who we sadly lost her brain tumour a couple of years ago. And for some of the decisions you were taking, you probably did need a bit of political cover 
I guess. Was, uh, was that an important relationship for you? She was never grappling to get hands-on things, but she was quite happy to support me in some of the difficult policies that we had to put in place. And she chaired uh, what was then known as the Sports Cabinet, I don't know if it still meets, which had the home country sports ministers on. And she helped manoeuvre, move through, I shouldn't say manoeuvre, but she helped get through some really significant changes across the home countries. So the thing that always struck me was what a lovely person she was. She was a politician that wanted to do things by consensus and collaboration, not by, you know, just driving yeah. to But if she had to, she was prepared to, to hold her ground. It helps an awful lot if everybody around the table knows that fundamentally you're somebody they can trust. Yeah. I mean, Tessa Jowell is not somebody who stitches people up behind their backs and all of that. She might be a hard negotiator. You have to be to get to her level in politics. But she was fundamentally trustworthy. And, and that really enables you to... And, and the same actually would apply to you, but the person you are is as important as your negotiating strategy and tactics. Yeah. I think you're very lucky if when you're in a position where you're trying to drive change your back's covered by somebody who gets what you're trying to do and, and yeah. is prepared to stand and support you. And I, I've been lucky in both roles, to be honest, to have that. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you'd like to put on the record about the growth of women's sport, about women's football, some sort of fundamental insight or some thought that you want to share with the listeners? I think maybe just an understanding of how... I was going to say fragile, that's perhaps not quite the right word, but how developmental women's sport still is, particularly yeah. at the professional end. You know, whether you're looking at cricket or, or football or you, you're looking at the women's rugby, we're still quite developmental and quite fragile in many ways. Uh, you know, the women's Super League clubs are spending more than they're bringing in. So we're still at a stage where people have to understand that it it looks good and we're making huge, huge progress. But my gosh, we've got a long way to go before women's sport is self-sustaining, has the same sort of commercial support and broadcast coverage. I mean, we've had unbelievable coverage. I mean, the BBC did an awesome job for us in the Euros. And we've got a great contract with Sky, BBC and ITV to cover England and the Super League and, and Championship Games. But that visibility is so important. You know, that, that old adage, you can't see it, you can't be it. So women's yeah. sport still needs to become more visible. It still needs more investment. And we should never underestimate it's still developmentally quite young at that professional end. And to grow the women's games at the top end we've got to not abandon what is great about women's sport in order to get more money in and and that's where we are at the moment you know money coming in is great but don't let's forget that whilst the rules are the same the game is different what you yeah. saw was a different game you didn't see players rolling about you didn't see people swearing at you saw more authentic people you know playing in a passionate way, which was great to see. And you saw a different sort of fan base. And the danger is that because men's games are so dominant and so successful, that they think that model is the model. 
and it's about saying no the women's model's got to be the women's model which is somewhat different it doesn't mean we can't learn from what's gone on it doesn't mean we can't gain from what's gone on but we've got to retain the difference while we grow the game so that's i think that's quite a profound thought to finish on so and i certainly saw that in the live game i went to in the the women's euros the game itself was different, the crowd was different, the atmosphere was different, the families coming together to watch the match. It was as good a day out I've had at sport anywhere in the world ever. It was fantastic. So I attribute, obviously, to you, but also to, to all the people who made that possible. Thank you very much for this conversation. Look forward to seeing you again soon. But I really appreciate you giving up the time for this conversation. Thank you, Michael. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest, Sue Campbell. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9 and feel free to suggest guests whose stories of change you'd like to hear. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Don't forget to review the Accomplishment Podcast and to subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and to the rest of the team.